All right, if you guys uh, have your Bibles, want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 15. That's where we're going to be at this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will gladly walk down the aisle and hand you out a copy of a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of the Lord. Uh, just kind of a uh, reminder or just update. So last week we prayed for our team, led by Will Vakirovich, uh, that went to Guatemala. Well, they all have made it back safely and they are back here in Tempe. And so we are thankful for that. Hey, we're thankful that our friends came back alive, guys. Okay, just, just, just wanted to make sure. Um, okay, so yeah, they're, they're back here. This is what we're going to do, okay. Exodus right now, we've, we've been going through several chapters and we have large sections. And I want to recap just very, very briefly and then let us know where we are today and then where we're going today. So first, um, the section of scripture that we're in now is, if you can recall, last week they had just gone through the Red Sea. God had part of the Red Sea and then uh, Pharaoh's army came in and, and God unparted the Red Sea and then they died and then God's people were safe and they, they wrote a worship song. And then the song that they said, that they wrote, what we said is worship in itself is primarily our eyes being fixed upon the Lord and his acts and his deeds. Us responding to God as he reveals himself through his acts. And that worship is not primarily about us, but primarily about God and the God in whom we serve. And so they wrote this song, and, and the so what was that we respond to God and worship no matter what our circumstances are like. And if you can remember the song, it was great. And then it said the women got the tambourines, and they got active, and then we got active here in the service. But if you weren't here, you missed it. It was wild. And so... Um, so today, what I, I said this last week is, though they're worshiping God, and though they're celebrating God, that they're going to turn around and forget God and grumble. Today, what you see in the section that we're going to go through, the latter part of chapter 15, all the way to the very beginning of 17, they grumble. And you're going to hear that phrase, and they grumbled, and then they grumbled, and they grumbled. Like, think, think about this. The people of God grumbled against God, even though God had already provided. That the people of God were complaining. Apparently, uh, thousands of years ago, complaining was an issue. Thank goodness things have changed, right? And, and, and what I want us to be able to see um, in this is, one, how much we relate to the Israelites, and we're going to see that over a period of time. But more importantly, what this particular section reveals about God. And so there's three stories, and I'll give you the structures of the stories um, that happened. There's three grumblings. The first was that they need water, and then they grumble. The second one is they need food, and then they grumble. The third is they want water again, and they grumble. And there's this pattern. There would be grumbling, and then God would provide, and then there'd be some sort of test, like God would be testing them. There'd be grumbling, and then there'd be provision, and there'd be test. There'd be grumbling, and then provision, and then testing. And then we'll look at some implications of what that looks like, particularly for, for us as a people as we, um, as we begin to look um, at our life and how Exodus applies to us. So if you're with me, Exodus chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 22. Then Moses, made Israel, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Moray, they could not drink the water at Moray because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Moray. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God 
and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And then he came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Okay, so this week, uh, Wednesday morning, I flew to Mississippi. I actually flew in the New Orleans and then drove over to Mississippi for about a day and a half, and, and then flew back on Wednesday or Friday morning. So it was a really, really fast trip to go be with my, my mom lives in Mississippi, and my family's there, and my family just has a lot of stuff going on. I mentioned not too much longer ago, um, my uncle passed away, and it's just a lot of crazy stuff that was happening. There was some, some highs and, and some lows. And what was interesting is the last night I was there, we were there Thursday night, and we were all, like, as normal, like, in my grandma's, like, living room. And there's people in the kitchen cooking, and there's people around the table waiting for the people in the kitchen to get done cooking. And they're sharing different stories and whatnot. And what they were sharing was they were sharing just all of the craziness that's been happening in my family over the past two to three years. And it was just super heavy. Um, I didn't get a chance to go to my uncle's funeral, who's, who's like a father figure to all of us. And, um, and I asked his son, while we're sitting on the table, hey, do you mind taking me to his burial site? It was, like, it was like in the middle of the night, and I said, yeah. I'm like usually afraid of cemeteries at night because of all the movies that I watched growing up. Uh, uh, but we went, had our piece there, came back, and they were still sharing his story. And what was interesting is, right when they got done sharing the story, someone would say, and this is how faithful God has been. Like, here's what God has done in this one. And even though this happened, here's what God has done in this one. And here's what God has done. And then somebody would say, ain't God good, right? Ain't God good. Someone says, this is how God was faithful. And somebody else would say, ain't God good, right? And it would just kind of go back and forth. And then immediately, as I shared with you last week, how my family just sings out of nowhere, and immediately they started singing, right? I promised you I videotaped it. I, I should have I had it on the screen, but that wasn't for y'all. That was just for us. And, uh, and and they just started worshiping, singing songs about how faithful God was. And, and it never dawned on them at any moment to stop and say, God's not good. Like, it, it, it never, it never, like, in, I mean, like, I, I don't even want to share all these stories because I don't think I can physically, I don't think I can emotionally handle it. Um, and not, not one moment, I'm talking cancer, multiple deaths, chil- I mean, children's loss of child. Uh, loss of husband, not one point. And I'm just sitting there going, what is it about some people of God that somehow see that God is bigger no matter what the circumstances are? And many of these, mainly women, they weren't, they're not out of it. Man, they are in it. They're in the bottom of the well with their backs on the ground, and yet somehow ain't God good. And I begin to think about the conversations I have with myself, the conversations I have with our people, Oftentimes, we find ourselves in a situation where it seemingly seems like God has removed something or has actively caused or allowed something in our life that is something that we don't like. And the question is not, or the statement or comment is not, ain't God good? It's going, is he even real? Like, is there even a God? Like, like, how could he, how could he, there's not this moment of worship. And it's not that these people are better than anybody else. It's not that my family somehow gets it and other people don't get it. It's, it's not somehow that they're just ignoring their circumstances and their situation. That's not it. There's just something about people who find their backs against the wall that have a deep-rooted faith in God that they can still see and experience the presence of God even in the mud. Um, if there was a, such a theme that would trace through, um, particularly this section in Scripture, it would be that God is faithful even when we're faithless. That, like the people of God in this situation, in this, in this story, they grumble. God should say, shut up. 
right? He should say that. And he doesn't. They grumble. God should say, I'm done with you. He does. They grumble, and then he provides. If, if delivering God's people through the Red Sea was the, was the birth of the particular nation here, then, then what we have in the next 40 years in the wilderness is their infancy and their growth. And that would make God the father. And, and, and as I'm reading through this, I'm going, there's a lot I can learn as a father and how to raise younger kids in terms of where they are and their developmental stage. Not just faithful in terms of spirituality, but in general. Because if you're anything like me and you're a parent, when I have to tell my kids the same thing over and over and over again, I say, didn't I already tell you that X amount of times? When are you going to get it? Why do I have to keep telling you this? God doesn't do that. Like he's, he's like, okay, you complain about water. All right, we'll get you some water. You got it. Oh, you complain about some food. Okay, guess what? I'm going to do this thing. I ain't done this before, but for the next 40 years, I'm going to have food come from the sky. Right? And like, I, I'm, I'm going to satisfy this. Oh, you guys need water again? Okay, and Moses, you got that staff still? Use that staff. Go ahead and give them some water. Right? Now, side note, they're going to be grumbling years later, and he's not going to act the same. Right? Because he's still a good father. And sometimes a really good father, a really good parent, they know when the children need a pat on the back and a little bit lower and a little bit firmer. That's not in my notes. That's free. So what you have, what you have here is you have the people of God grumbling. The first thing they do is it says here is that they find themselves, um, they're just out of the Red Sea and they're moving towards uh, Mount Sinai. And it says they get to a particular point um, in the wilderness called Shur, and, and, and they went there for three days in the wilderness with no water. And so they came to uh, this particular place, and they didn't have water, and so it says they grumbled against Moses. There it is. There's grumbling, provision, and then there's testing. So at first in verse 24, it's just the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? If I'm Moses, I'm like, Lord, I'm done, right? I already did what I needed to do. Like, I was, I was in the wilderness living a good life. And now I have all these people who all they want to do is complain against me. Notice this. They never actually complain against God. They always complain against God's representative. Now, I'm not going to be one of those pastors that go, you know, I'm like in the position of Moses. And then you're not complaining, complaining against me. You're complaining against God and all that stuff. Because I, I think that's lame, okay? Because we're not Moses as pastors. Because <laughs> honestly, I don't know very many pastors who had a burning bush talking to them and it was God. So. Here's what we have here, verse 25, and he cried to the Lord, Moses being he, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord uh, made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. And what he tells them is like, if you just obey the Lord, if you just obey his word, then all of the things that happened to Egypt won't happen to you. Um, what we see is God hears them grumbling again. And, and, and he's trying to do something to them. We're going to talk about what the testing means here later. But he's showing them and revealing them that he's God. That he already revealed to them that he's God. He's revealing to them again and again and again and again that he's God. Don't think he's not doing the same thing to us. Every time we sin, in essence, what we are doing functionally in that moment is saying that the Savior in whom we have is Jesus is not enough, and we're looking to something else as a functional Savior for that moment. And God has to, in repentance and faith and our life through his means of grace, show us again who he is. So it's not like these Israelites, what were they thinking? No, no, no. This is the way the people of God have always acted. And so they, they grumble, like, like and it, the irony is this, they're grumbling to God, or mostly to God through Moses, like, we don't have water, like, what are we going to do? Okay, 
just moments ago, they saw God part the Red Sea. As if he don't know how to do things with water, right? Like before that, they already knew that he took the staff that Moses had and he turned the Nile into blood. And it's not so much about the staff, or in this particular case, it's not about the log that he throws into the water. That's good. It's not the staff that's good. It's not the log that's good. It's because God is good. And because God is faithful. And that even in their, their inability to see, trust God, even moments after they said they just sing a song that they trust him, even though they just turned their backs on him, God doesn't turn his back on them. Because he's faithful to his promises. And it, he provides, and he says, obey me. And then the interesting thing is, the very end part of this, this first story, verse 27, it says this. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. What you see in this section is there's a lot of echoes of, of being in Egypt and of looking forward to what is to come. There's the echoes of God is over creation and that he can provide water and he does what he wants with water. But then there's also the looking forward to. So when it has 12 springs, meaning he says you have plenty. There will be tw- they're almost to say that 12 and 70 are numbers of completion. That there's 12 tribes and there's 12 springs and then and there's, there's 70 palm trees for shade that God is saying I will provide because he's the Lord who provides. And he lets them know that. Well, that's just the first story. A month later, right, a month goes good. Just like Christians today, Lord, you're good. Lord, I, I'm sorry. Like, I, I was tripping. Um, I'm going to rededicate my life. Um, I was backsliding. Whatever language they used back then in their culture, they're like, Lord, I'm committed now. And then a month later, first chapter 16, verse 1. They set, him, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is an interesting name, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, and they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said again, Would that we died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread of the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Just think about this. They're saying... they. There is revisionist history that is going on right now, right? We wish we were back in Egypt when there was meat and there was bread. Oh, not the fact that we were slaves and not the fact that they were killing off our firstborn. Like, they don't remember any of that. It's like, Moses, I wish you would have done this because all that's going to happen now is we're going to die in the wilderness of hunger, right? It was like God won't provide. Like, immediately, like a month later, they're already complaining. And they're complaining against Moses that God's not going to provide. I feel like some of us have this. We might, not, we might not say this out loud. But many of us who have decided to trust and follow Jesus in the ways of Jesus, there are moments in our life where the spiritual high rubs off, moments of temptation, moments of doubt, moments where the things of the world seem far more appealing than the things of God, that some of us are like, you know what, I think my life was better before Jesus. I wish I could do the things that I were able to do before God said these things were prohibited. I wish I could not do the things that God keeps saying to do. I, I feel like I, I wish I can go back to the days of Jesus as if somehow those days were amazing. Even sometimes the way we tell stories about our life before Jesus, man, it used to be like this, and it used to be like that, and it used to be, and we get all excited like it was amazing. And we know like, yeah, it's like, are there things that we do apart from God that are fun? Yeah, my old mentors tell me sin is fun unless you're doing it wrong. It's just not promising good, right, and true and beautiful. And so they have this revisionist history going on, and they grumble. God could have said, Oh, y'all want to go back? I can unpart that seed. <laughs> Why? Like, he could have said that. But he doesn't. Verse 4. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, there's the testing, whether they will walk in the way of my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation and the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 13, and in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay, and the dew lay and had gone up, and there on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it I'm not gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to say something, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. But Surrey is not important as the Lord is. No, I'm just joking with you guys. So you have, dew had gone up, and then on the face of the wilderness, it was fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is bread from the Lord that the Lord has given to you. Um, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each of you, um, as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons each has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. And they gathered some and some less. And when they had measured it, an omer, however, gathered much, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. So here is the beginning of what we have is a couple things. One is when God began to provide the manna. And so God, in response to their grumble, your grumbling, does not turn his back, but he actually provides for them. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second because if you're reading this and you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, um, it sounds like this story is going to also be repeated um, in the book of Numbers. Well, one, let me let you know. Basically, from the time of the Red Sea all the way into Joshua chapter 3 is, is the whole Pentateuch. So basically, what we read in Exodus right now is the whole Pentateuch. And that means the first Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Um, all of this happens. So in some of the, some of the narratives, whether it be Deuteronomy or no, uh, Numbers and so forth, you'll hear some of the same stories. So when you hear this story about the quail and the meat, it may bring up um, a story that comes up in Numbers. I believe Numbers 13, but in the Numbers, it talks about how the people of God, they grumbled again. And they were like, we want meat. And God's like, you want meat? I'll give you more meat than you can handle till it be coming out of your nostrils, right? That's not this, this time. That's going to happen later in the book of Numbers. And uh, when we teach through the book of Numbers, I hope that um, I'm no longer the preaching pastor here. Uh, so we have... We have here it is they're they're hungry and so God provides and He provides the the quail so they wake up and there's all this quail and they have all the quail which is fine um, and they eat the quail but the quail was just temporary but what He starts to do now is it begins to bring the stuff from the sky 
and then they begin to see this stuff from the, from the sky that the Lord provides. And, and they said, the way they describe it here, it's, it's like frosty, and it's like flake, and it's like frosted. It's like, kind of like frosted flakes, right? And so God's like, I don't just provide you something that's good. It's they're great. And so he has, he has, he has, he has his particular food. <laughs> see what I did there? So he has his food for them. And it truly is. It's good because they're like, it tastes like honey. Like this is delicious. Now, the particular thing they have is they say, what is it? The question, like, what is it? That's what manna means. Like, what is it in Hebrew is what is it? Or manna. So you say, what is manna? It's what is it? Well, what is it? It's manna. It's kind of hard. But like, they didn't know what it was, so they called it manna, which means what is it? And Moses says, well, it's like bread that the Lord has provided for you that you may have. And then he institutes something called the Sabbath. And he's preparing them for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is that for six days you work and seventh day you rest. And it reflects God in creation as we always are to reflect our God. And that God worked for six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And God tells them every day they're going to come out and there's going to be manna. They're supposed to take just enough for themselves. Some people took a lot, but it was just enough. Some people took a little, but it was just enough. And he says on the sixth day, take twice as much because you're going to need some for the next day. But that's only on the sixth day. And don't eat it on the seventh day because you are to reflect rest. The reason why you're supposed to reflect rest, as he said here, the, re the reason why he was doing this is to show them that he is the Lord and to see if they would actually obey him and that they would trust him. Not just to say, I'm just going to be a rule follower, but to know that God is the one who provides. That it's not our work, it's the Lord who provides. It's God who is for us. It's God who is with us. And that part of this was to show them that God is the one who provides for them. And it said that some of the people actually um, took more than they should have, and they tried to go back and eat it on the seventh day when they weren't supposed to go out and get it, and it says it turned into worms because they disobeyed God. Many of us, we know what it's like to disobey God and to walk in, in the things and ways that are not his, and we're experiencing worms in our life. We're experiencing the decay in our life. We're experiencing the death in our life because we are not walking in the ways of the Lord. That maybe for a moment it still might be sweet, but eventually it begins to turn on us because it was never for us because it wasn't the ways in which God had designed it. And so he gives us the Sabbath here. And some of you may say, well, I thought the Sabbath doesn't come into the law, which is Exodus 20. Um, there are a lot of laws the Lord was giving already. They were not written down until we begin to see it in Exodus 20. And then even when it comes to the laws, the Ten Commandments and so forth, we'll get to that in, in a couple weeks here, is those laws that the Lord gives, some of those are unique to God's people, and some of them are just even laws that were just kind of general laws in the land of those who were the people of God and those who were not people, the people of God. Like, for instance, um, to obey your parents. Most cultures that surrounded the people of God obeyed their parents, um, or even more so. Um, you should not murder, okay? People in every culture and every generation have always believed that it's a good idea not to murder your neighbors. And that's a good thing, right? Whether you believe in God, people have thought, you know what, I probably shouldn't murder him, right? And so these laws in themselves were already beginning to be given to the people of God even now. But even then, the laws were to reveal who God was and how do we respond to him and how he is the one who provides for us. And so we see this, people of God, they grumble, the Lord tests them again, and yet he still provides for them. The last story here is another one of water. Chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin to the, in stages, by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped and Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Side note, I always thought this was interesting that when you read this, you guys like, you got to read the Bible and like, like listen to what it's saying. Because sometimes this stuff's pretty funny. Is you have the people of God saying, we don't have meat. And then here they're like, we have livestock though. And it's like, you guys are saying, you don't have meat, but you have meat. And it's like, well, we didn't really want to eat our meat. And then the Lord provided quail. Completely hilarious to me, right? So like, you're going to kill us, you're going to kill our children, and our livestock with thirst. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people with Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord not among us? So see what the people of God is doing. Though God had parted the Red Sea, and they experienced it, and then he, he, he delivered them, and when their enemies came, he allowed the waters to crush over them. Like one who was sovereign over creation and sovereign over water. Though they complained that the water was bitter and it was not drinkable, God made it sweet and he made it good. Though they complained that they didn't have anything to eat and God gave them meat and he provided bread every day, they would come out and God would be providing for them. Now they get to a place when there's no water and then they quarrel and they complain again. In fact, the word Massa and Meribah, where they named the places, Massa literally means um, to test because they're testing, they're testing God through Moses. And then Meribah means quarreling, that they're just arguing and they're complaining. And, and yet, what does God do? He says, Moses, take that staff as you did in the Nile, meaning echoes, looking back, the way it shows that God can move through and move creation in such a way to bring about destruction as he did in the Nile and judgment as he did in Egypt. And you can use it through creation to bring about deliverance as he's done for the people of God already and providing safety for them, as he's done in providing water for them, as he's done provided food for them, and as he does again to provide water for them again, that God meets their needs and he meets their needs in such a way that they may know that he is God. And so the question comes up of, what is this testing? Like we see them grumbling and then God provides. Um, the first thing is, when you think about the God of the Old Testament, who by the way is the God of the whole Bible, but oftentimes people say, the God of the Old Testament, not a lot of grace. Like, I don't see the grace. How do you hear the story and not see the grace? They turn their back on him and he taps them on the shoulder and says, here's a gift. They turn their back on him again, he taps their shoulder and says, here's a gift. They turn their back, here's a gift. You see how gracious he is. And his grace is to them not because they were slaves. Not because even just because they're hungry or just because they're thirsty. His grace is extended to them because years previous, he made a promise with their ancestors that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And so God was going to do whatever it takes to show his benevolent love and his covenantal love towards his people, even when his people turned his back against him. Like, we can't go, oh, only in the New Testament. No, this is a God who's showing forth his grace with people who are not deserving. And yet he doesn't stop. You know why? Because when he is faithful. He's still faithful even when we're faithless because he's that good. The other thing we see with the testing is, you got to understand, when it comes to, the, when the Bible talks about testing and the Lord tested them, it's not testing in the way that we think about it. 
It's not that God is this divine professor who's like doing pop quizzes all over the place and he's trying to get us to fail to see if we can do something or not do something. It's not a benefit to the Lord. The testing is a benefit to his people. You can see it more clearly when you read in Exodus 20 that his testing is ultimately that they may be able to see that he is the covenant God. That he's trying to get them to see in his action and his deliverance and his provision and so forth that he's God and that what's already been true that they now can experience. That he's always been deliverer, that he's always been a covenantal God, that he's always loved them, he's always been provider. That they may be able to see that his laws and his rules and his commands are not there to see if they can get in. They're there because he desires for them to be in. And he desires for them to know. And to live in what is right and what is true and what is beautiful. So the testing is that the people of God may in their walk with the Lord begin to be revealed over and over again. That as he says, I am the Lord. That we may know him. And this is not just false flat on the people of God in the Old Testament. We can see even in our, our own life that we are constantly needed to be reminded that he is God. Not our employers. That he is God. Not our children. Not our spouses. That he is God, not the things in which we have. That he is not only just God over things, he's sovereign over all things, good, bad, and indifferent. That we constantly need to see, even in our own lives, that he is God and he is God alone. He is worthy to be our praise, and he himself has extended grace that we may see him and be in right relationship with him. And that when we ourselves have turned our back on him, that he sovereignly through his spirit by the son taps us on the shoulder and gives us grace that we may repent and believe in faith. So, so what implications does this have for us, particularly as a people? And there's three things that I have, and these are, these are, these are the first one is a saying that I got from one of my old, my, my old mentor. But before we get into it, we, when we understand how to interpret the Old Testament, um, we said this before, you can't just jump from this and then apply certain things like the log that went in the water uh, reminds you of that one time. No, just, right? And I know we make fun of that, but it, like people do this all the time. And I don't want to make fun of them. It's just going, that's just not good. We have to look at what are the themes. And mainly what you see is, what does this teach us about God? What is he like? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then what do we see in the people of God that teaches us about ourselves? I've said this before, my old mentor told me this, because one thing you need to, you, you need to know this when, if you're going to do ministry, and I once said it was, two things you need to know. One, God can change anybody. Does he always have to learn the lesson? God can change anybody. Right? He goes, number two is, people don't change. Ain't <laughs> 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 that the truth? <laughs> so what we see is, the first one here is, is um, we have to let what we know trump what we feel. Okay? And that's a lowercase t. And I don't mean that for any other reasons other than the fact that I just said it's a lowercase t. Let what you know trump what you feel. Mentor used to always say this. And basically what this is saying is um, we can't look at our circumstances and begin to dictate what is good, right, true, and beautiful. What the Israelites were doing was they were looking at the lens of, like, what their circumstance was and looking at the perception. And they were interpreting reality in front of them apart from who God is and what he's done and what he's proven himself to do. And what this, what this is saying is we need to find whatever circumstance and whatever situation we find ourselves in, the way that we find ourselves faithful in that is not just by looking at the situation. It's not, it's not ignoring it because we can't. It's real. But knowing what is true about God, laying what we know to be true about God, not just intellectually just mulling in our head, but having it filter into our hearts that there's faith. And the faith that we have begins to trump the feelings. Feelings are good. They're a gift from God. 
But like anything else that is good and a gift from God, it's been tainted by sin. And some way, sometimes our feelings don't actually lead us to the very presence of God. And so we need to be rooted in a faith that is constant, rooted in the character and the ways of God, our Lord and our Savior. Amen? So let what you know trump what you feel. God has already shown himself to part the sea. God has already shown himself to give us water. God has already shown himself to give us food. Just fast forward. God has already sent his son, and he's died on the cross. God has already sent that same son, and by the Spirit, he raises from the dead. God has already not only sent the son and raises from the dead, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he advocates on my behalf. And not only just advocates on my behalf, he's given me the Spirit as a deposit that he's coming back to get all of me and redeem all of creation. I have to believe that and let that, that to be true, even when the feelings around me and everything else is coming crashing. The second thing is our good and his glory. And that is God actively causes all things for our good and his glory. And that's hard for us to hear. We want to know God's in control when he's in control and the outcome goes our way. It is hard sometimes to believe in a God who's in control when the outcome just doesn't go our way. And then it doesn't go away again. And then it doesn't go our way again. One of the reasons why it doesn't go our way because we're not God's way. And it doesn't, that, that, by saying that, it doesn't mean that the outcome in itself not going your way isn't sad or difficult. The reality of it is everybody in this room, either at some point or in the future or right now, is going through something that's horrible, right? It's just hard. Um, like I said before, I was with my family. I wish, I wish somehow I can take a portion of my life and give it to my family. I can't. And it's hard. You know what my job is? My job is to pastor people and listen to what's happening in their life, point them to Jesus, and some ways help. And I feel like I can't even do any of those things for my own family. And that's difficult, right? And I wish I, wish I could, and there's just things I literally can't do. Um, but you just sit with people and you just, you just, you just realize it's, it's a mess. And yet God actively causes or allows all things for our good and his glory. We like the first part. We want it to be for our good. But sometimes for him to get the glory, it doesn't seem very good at first. A lot of us are going, I have no idea what the good you're talking about because I haven't seen any of it. Um, But if we are staying true to who God is, he allowed 400 years of slavery for this particular people yet to redeem them. He's about to allow, in response to their own rebellion now, 40 years in the wilderness before there's a promised land. He even allows for them to get what they want, and that is a king, even though the king's going to run all over them. He even allows for them, in response to their sin, to be taken from the promised land into captivity again for years. He allows them to come back and still not understand what God's doing. And yet, for his own glory, he sent his son Jesus so that every yes and every amen will find its way in him and we have a hard time really understanding suffering like we say it's going to be for our good we have a hard time we have a really hard time because it just doesn't seem like it's ever going to get right but it's not on us to be able to see especially if we have a god who's sovereign over creation and he's guiding history to its end it's not by no means to omit the pain and the things that we have it's been able to sit in it and trust that God is amongst us. The question they ask is, is God among us? Um, he is. And he's present in the very power of his spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we also don't have a God. We also don't have a God who's exempt from suffering. 
But we don't have this God who's abstract. We don't have a God who is snapping his finger somewhere. We actually have in the God of the Bible, one who put on flesh, who knows what it's like to be poor and not have resources. Who knows what it's like to be in a family where people are questioning who his dad is. He knows what it's like to have the people closest to him, even family, turn their back on him to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have sorrow. He knows what it's like to lose a friend. He's experienced death. He's experienced sickness. He knows all of these things. That Then he goes to the cross, and he knows what it's like to suffer for somebody else's wrongdoing. Like, he knows what it's like. So when we have in our Savior, we don't have just Jesus who suffered for us. We actually have Jesus who suffered with us. We have Jesus who wept with us. We have Jesus who has experienced loss with us. And that the same Jesus that got buried, that died, is the same Jesus that he raised to life. And he's given us that new life and his presence, even in the midst of whatever suffering that we find ourselves in. And that, my friends, is good. And it's to God's glory. Amen? The, the, the last thing that we have here is we have to be able to choose our Savior over our stomach. What we have here in the people of God is they're just going off their guts. And sometimes you need to choose your gut. <laughs> a lot of times you don't. They're going, we're thirsty. There can't be a God. Right? We're hungry. There's no God. We're thirsty again. There's never been a God. Right? And, and, and the point here is sometimes our inclinations, our instincts, our impulses, our temptations, our desires, let me, our desires sometimes that are good, our desires, they take us away from the things of God and they're not rooted in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. We look to other things to satisfy us when we were not made for anything or anyone else save Jesus Christ. We were not made even for the things and the people whom we loved. And we love. Listen, God, we have to understand the promises of God. Because sometimes, we, sometimes we'll say, we know your promises. Do we? Why? Like, God never promised that we won't have family members who we love go through the worst crud that we, I've never said the word crud until last service. I just couldn't say the word I wanted to say because there are some kids in here, right? And I don't want you guys saying the pastor be teaching our kids all these words, right? I, I almost said something else. Uh, so we, th- we, we have ultimately... Like, the promises that God gives us are not always unique to us as individuals. He didn't promise that our spouses were going to be amazing. He didn't promise that you were going to be an amazing spouse. He didn't promise that our kids, goodness gracious, we know that he did not promise that our kids were going to be obedient, right? He didn't promise that we were going to get into the right college, we are going to get the right job, that we were going to find a spouse. He didn't promise any of those things, and yet we're always mad at him for it. We live in a world that is drenched in sin. He has promised to overcome that. So we have to cling and hang on to the things that are good, right, and true in Jesus, not just our appetites. It is not to say that you can't pray for things that are going on in your marriage, that you cannot pray for things that are going on in your family. You cannot pray for circumstances and situations. Absolutely. You can pray and ought to pray because he's still good. But we have to know what he's promised and what the Savior has already accomplished. We need to step into, sit in, and rest in those truths. It's the only way that we're going to be able to be satisfied. We can't be satisfied by anything else but temporarily. And the way we know that is that when you conclude this story and the greatest redemption, not the exodus, but 
the exodus of all exodus, and that is deliverance from sin, Satan, and death by the very blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says this in the Gospel of John chapter 6. He goes, speaking of the wilderness, he goes, did you not know that it was not Moses who rained down bread from the sky, but it was my father? And he says, and today he gives you true bread, speaking of Jesus himself. And Jesus, just to let them know that he, to be clear, he says, I am the bread of life. That in the Old Testament, they had to come out every day trusting, I wonder if God will provide daily. Jesus now says, I'm the bread of life who will, who will provide eternally. That Jesus says, whoever eats of me will never hunger, whoever drinks of me will never be thirsty. That it's not physical food and water, as important that is, that ultimately satisfies. But the one thing that satisfies is Jesus because he's enough. He's enough. He's enough when you can't do enough. He's enough when there's loss. He's enough when there's doubt. He's enough when your back is turned. He's enough when there's illness and there's sickness. He's enough when there's meat and when there's no meat. He's enough when there's water and there's no water. He's always enough, he has always been enough, and he will always be enough. Amen? Close your eyes, please. God in heaven, we thank you. And we confess, we confess that you have provided, but we always just want more. That you are good, but sometimes we overlook your goodness. That you are more than enough, and yet, Lord, we go to things that are seemingly just insatiable. That you are Savior, and yet we settle for functional Savior. We confess, Lord, that we need your grace to give us water in Jesus, to give us bread in Jesus, to satisfy us fully and completely, to lift up our eyes that we may be able to see you and trust you, even in the midst of suffering that we don't and can't ignore. It's real, and it's super sad, and it's really hard, and we're thankful that you are God and that you are present. And your word lets us know that you never leave us and you never forsake us. Help us to cling to that truth in faith and obedience to your word. Shape us as a people and as a community to trust you and love you. We ask these things in Christ's name.